Imagine being rich and stylish in London, being able to not only afford, but to enjoy and appreciate and fit into London's finest scenes. If that's you, then James Sherwood's witty guidebook to London's most stylish and characteristic restaurants, hotels, specialty shops, and other elegant scenes is just right to help you spend your money in style. As a longtime fashion critic and style guru, James has compiled James Sherwood's Discriminating Guide to London. He joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves with personally vetted advice for enjoying what, in London, they call the upper crust. James, welcome. Hello. Hello. Thanks for joining us. It's so much fun for um, us on the other side of the uh, Atlantic here to go over to London and uh, try to survive in a city that, as you call, uh, the most cosmopolitan city in the world, and uh, I figure the most expensive city in Europe, and do it in a way where we're not just driven down into the chain, you know, restaurants and the and the lowest way to consume, but connect with the elegance of London. What is the concept for you of your book? What are you trying to help travelers do? I think there's a huge difference between elegance and expense. London is is swamped with um, foreign money now from from the Middle East, from Russia, from China, particularly. And it's changing the character of the city in a way. So there is a, a very rich seam at the top, top, top for the, the super rich. And the book is not really about them because they tend to spoil a venue, in my opinion. You know, if, if you spend more than 10 minutes in the company of the super rich, you really want to run, run a mile and, and find somewhere a little, little more discreet and a little more English. I, I mean, we have this delightful notion of the the proper English gentleman. I mean, we're all crazy about Downton Abbey, and it was such a beautiful scene. Does that yes. survive in the 21st century? I mean, what is the perfect gentleman traditionally, and, and where is that today? I think the the whole concept of, of Downton has... Um, it certainly still exists in London. I mean, we have restaurants, certainly, hotels, certainly, and shops, most definitely, that go back one, two, three hundred years Many who have the Queen's Royal Warrant or the previous King's Royal Warrant. So these venues, they tend to gather around St. James's Palace and Buckingham Palace. So we're talking about St. James's and Mayfair uh, yeah. and Piccadilly. So it's the traditional fashionable West End. And I'm very pleased to say that we still have the Ritz. We still have the Savoy. On St. James's Street, we still have Berry Brothers and Rudd, which is one of the oldest vintners, if not the oldest vintner mm-hmm. in the world. Yeah, I took a walk down uh, German Street. I think that's in that area. Yes. And, you know, you see people that, that make shirts and, they, and they've got all these fancy hats for the races yes. and hats for this and hats for that. Take us on a walk down uh, a place like Germain Street. What might we see and, and how does that sort of warm your spirit as far as this elegance from the, the good old days surviving in our modern world? I think German Street to me is one of the most exciting and one of the most romantic streets in London in a way. If you're walking from St. James's Street, you'll come across Turnbull and Asser, the royal shirt maker to Prince Charles on the right, that was founded in 1885. And it's essentially still making what it made in 1885, bespoke shirts and bow ties. Gentlemen's requisites, you call it. So everything but the suit. Let's talk about gentlemen's requisites because we look yes. at the windows and we see sock garters and starched oh, yes, wing collars and stiff yes, bib fronted evening shirts. Uh, take us through the, the wardrobe there. I suppose it's wonderful that that still exists because there is, is still a market for it. For example, Royal Ascot Week and in the Royal Enclosure you are expected to wear morning tails, which you know gentlemen would have been wearing in the late 19th century. It hasn't changed at all, including the stiff stud collars. 
they're really for the the grown-ups i suppose um you don't see many of the younger men wearing them now it's it's probably too much of a faff but german street still maintains a standard i think that has existed for an awful long time and, and also that area of london was known as a bachelor quarter from the era of Charles II. So we're going back to 1666, the Great Fire, hmm. when everything moved, the mercantile class moved from the city into the West End. And that was really the birth of luxury in the West End. So it's not unusual to find a shop that's been going farther to sun since the 19th century, but you're saying the tenor of that neighborhood goes back even four centuries. Absolutely, it does. It can go even further. I wrote a book called Royal St. James's, which was called Five Centuries of Royal Royal Style. Mm-hmm. And it went back to St. James's Palace, which was built by Henry VIII for Anne Boleyn in 1530 mm-hmm. Um She lost her head before she moved in, unfortunately. <laughs> back on this, uh, it could be a number of streets. And you talk about the exceptional streets in your book. You have a delightful yes. part of your book yes. uh, with uh, Savile Row and Lamb's Conduit Street. And, oh, Lamb's Conduit Street, yes. And, and Burlington Arcade. I love the... By the way, let's talk about arcades, because that takes me back to a day long before shopping malls. Well, I believe Burlington Arcade was the first covered shopping arcade. It was built in, I, I think it was 1819, and it was the Earl of Burlington lived next door in Burlington House, and mm-hmm. the peasants used to throw their oyster shells over his uh, <laughs> wall, and he didn't like it, so he and the Countess decided to build a covered shopping street, and this is Burlington Arcade, still exists today and still is beautiful. So if we find ourselves on one of these exceptional streets that you write about, you might find a a shop that that features just hats. And you step into this shop, and if the proprietor has the moment to explain things to you, there's a hat for every occasion. What hats might somebody uh, need if they're going to be proper in London? Well, you you tend to wear only wear a straw boater at Henley, the Henley Royal Regatta. It it looks quite eccentric and costumey to wear such a thing anywhere else. A top hat, a silk top hat for Royal Ascot, black silk top hat, is appropriate. But the Panama hats really, I think, are for the modern gentleman, especially the gentleman who travels, you know, all the continents and, and all the climates. I mean, that's, that's possibly the most important. But mm-hmm. um, for the young, you see the trilbies and the flat caps. You know, you mentioned uh, with a little bit of concern, that the younger generation, maybe they're not doing this or maybe they're not doing that. Is it just time for them to, to sow their oats and, and get the craziness out of their system and settle down and become proper upper-crust English gentlemen, or do you think there is a, an actual generational change that's going to rewire the whole upper-end situation? What I think is amusing, that, that it's probably my generation, and I'm in my 40s now, who rejected a lot of the formal dress and the Savile Row suit, and it's those chaps that you see wearing jeans and high-top trainers and T-shirts and probably dressing like children's television presenters when they shouldn't do. And you find the young generation react against their parents. They probably want to dress like their grandparents, in which case, you know, we should have a a wonderful time for young men wanting to dress like English gentlemen again. And as you said, Downton Abbey's had a huge effect. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with James Sherwood. James's book is The Discriminating Guide to London. It's like having a confidant who knows the story behind every elegant shop window. It's, It's fun to read, even if you're not going to London. James, I, I referred earlier to the upper crust. Do you, do you know the yes. derivation of that, that phrase? Of the upper crust? I don't, I'm afraid. You'll, you'll have to enlighten me. So this is a little tour guide thing, but uh, there was something about in, in the Middle Ages when they were cooking up something, the uh, mm-hmm. elegant people always got the upper crust, and then the peasants got what was on the bottom of the pan. Yes, that, that plus a change, I suppose. But today, the theme of your book is you don't need to be filthy rich to connect with this often parallel world if you think about 
enjoying the Ritz, but being able to afford it, what is your advice? There must be some ways where you can do something other than look through the window at this upper crust of London. Well, there certainly is. My tip for the Ritz is not to go to tea because it's become quite a tourist attraction. And the Ritz is now serving tea from 11 a.m. to about 7.30, 8 o'clock in the evening, which mm-hmm. is ludicrous, really, considering tea is really between 3 and 5 o'clock. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you're dressed correctly, I would walk straight through the hotel and out onto the terrace, which looks out onto Green Park. Mm-hmm. And nobody knows that you can actually sit on the terrace on a very nice day and order a Pims or a gin and tonic and happily sit there. And it won't cost you an awful lot of money. And you're probably one of the most exclusive gardens in London. You know, you can do that anywhere in your travels. And um, that's one thing I found is you just dress up the best you can, walk straight into the place like you own it, and sit down at the bar or go into the terrace in the back. I was just in Venice, and I and I stepped out on oh, the on the on the favorite. on the backyard of a of a fancy hotel that I would never afford to stay in. But I could sit there and have a drink and enjoy the best view in the city, as if I'm waiting for George Clooney's wedding. <laughs> and I think you're very welcome as well when you do that, because most people are terrified of just walking through the door at a hotel like the Ritz or Claridge's mm-hmm. or the Savoy. So I suppose you get points for even um, having the guts to walk yes. into these hotels. That's for sure. And there are also restaurants that seem out of reach that actually have lunch specials and pre-theater specials that actually are quite accessible. You certainly do your homework online bef- before you, you mm-hmm. risk it in a way. But if you went to Helen Darroze or the Connaught, the Connaught's one of the most beautiful old hotels on Carlos Place, just off Mount Street in Mayfair. And a set lunch will be for two or three courses will be 20 or 30 pounds, which is absolutely yeah. miraculous. It's usually the wine that gets you yeah. in London. You're going to spend 15 pounds in a forgettable, dingy Precisely. Stri- uh, strip mall, and you could spend 20 pounds and have a, a two-course lunch or a pre-theater dinner at, the, at the Criterion. And it's such a different story now that people don't tend to eat the way that they used to in the Edwardian era. So it's not seven or nine courses. I, I'm not a great fan of, um, you know, the tasting menus particularly because it's rather too much. You mm-hmm. know, I'd much rather have one course with one glass of wine that's mm-hmm. absolutely exquisite mm-hmm. rather than sitting in a pret-a-manger amongst the, the hordes and uh, having a miserable time. <laughs> yes, I, absolutely. And there are some of these spaces that are so elegant at the same time, so accessible. And every tourist goes to Piccadilly Circus, and you have all that riffraff out there in the square. Mm-hmm. And you step into the Criterion. Describe what it's like. I love the way you describe the Criterion in your book. It looks like a Byzantine church in mm-hmm. Ravenna. I mean, it's absolutely extraordinary. Mm. And apparently it was, it was covered up for most of the 70s and 80s, and it became a Boots the Chemist. So it wasn't until a new owner came in and, and pulled down various sort of false walls and they found these Byzantine mosaics. Mm. And it really is, it's Art Nouveau to me. It's sort of very high Art Nouveau. And if you like Gustav Klimt, the painter, you've got the picture, really. It looks like you're dining in a Gustav Klimt. It's exquisite. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with James Sherwood. And, and James's book is The Discriminating Guide to London. James's website is james-sherwood.com. And we're talking about the perfect gentleman or gentlewoman in London. You mentioned in your book, James, that London is the world's most cosmopolitan city. How is London special and different that way when you think of the the great cities around the world? I suppose that's quite a boast, isn't it, to say it's the most cosmopolitan city in the world. It it was intended to be ever so slightly controversial. I suppose (laughs) what I mean is that it was cosmopolitan before any other city in the world. It was developed before any other important city today in the world, probably with the exception of Beijing. 
and and has held, I think, that attraction with the global, not just the elite. I don't think everybody comes to London if they can. Possibly everybody wants to see London once in their lives. You were talking about things changing. There is clearly a nouveau riche, and there's a lot of uh, Gulf oil magnets and so on, and half of London mm-hmm. seems to be owned by people who used to be part of the, the empire, and, and now they've sort of come home to buy up the capital. How do you see things changing in London? I suppose it's complimentary that the Sultan of Oman or, or Qatar wants to, to invest in London. That's, that's a compliment in itself, but at the same token... It is slightly um, spoiling certain areas. For example, Knightsbridge used to be very old England, I suppose. It, mm-hmm. it was Mary Poppins to me when you walk around Eaton Square and Eaton Place. It, it used to be very charming. Now it's empty because these properties are being bought up by um, international investors who actually don't live there. They're probably there one week of the year. And the rest of the year, Knightsbridge belongs to the nannies and the cleaners. And no disrespect to nannies and cleaners either. Mm-hmm. Good for them. I would love to have one of those houses or look after yeah, right. it. But um, it's extraordinary how particular areas are being colonized now by particular nationalities. And um, Knightsbridge possibly has suffered the most. You know, you mentioned uh, you list the the restaurants in different groupings. I love the way you, yes. you talk about what are a couple of your, your, your groupings? Well, my favorite is where to eat with amorous intent. So if you're intending to, um, to romance a lady or a gentleman, this is where you would take them. Um, for example, there's a restaurant in Soho called Andrew Edmonds that is, is made for seduction. It's candlelit at night. It's a Georgian house, you know, an 18th century house. The staff are incredibly discreet. It's almost like the Second Wives Club. You always see the people scouting for new husbands you know, in Andrew Edmonds. It's so funny because there must be thousands of restaurants in London, and I list a handful of them in my guidebook. And for years, I've listed Andrew Edmonds in my guidebook. Oh. But it's the only <laughs> restaurant I've ever encountered, James, where I'm at odds with the restaurateur. He doesn't want to be in the book. And he, he's so, like you said, it's discreet. And I, I write it up in a way where it's just, this is really a very, very discreet place. And it's just a special little corner of, of London. Yes. And, and those are rare. I, I would agree. Andrew lives, well, he, he actually doesn't live upstairs, but he has a private club called the Academy Upstairs, and that's his spiritual home. He doesn't have as, as much to do with the restaurant now. I mean, for my book, I think it was Gordon's Wine Bar at the bottom of Villiers Street, which is just sort of touching Strand and Covent Garden. And... I, they had no interest in talking to me about their business, but that didn't matter because I, I wasn't really talking to the proprietors of, of these places because I wasn't after a freebie. Right. Do you list Everything, Gordon's? the restaurants, the hotels. Gordon's I didn't in the end no, because it's too claustrophobic. It's very it's claustrophobic. Like, you, you couldn't go yeah. in there dressed up. You, I mean, you're, you're lucky you, to find you, a little corner of couldn't. a table. But that's like sipping wine with Charles Dickens in, in, a, in somebody's amazing cellar. I mean, it's... Yes, it's very Bill Sykes and Nancy. Um, That's Gordon's. better, Bill Sykes, and, yeah. <laughs> uh, and it's not, and when you used to be able to smoke indoors, it was absolutely unbearable. I mean, you couldn't see your hand in front of yeah. your face for a start. Gordon's Wine Bar, that's one of the most atmospheric sellers for wine tasting, and they really are good with their wine. And as mm-hmm. you mentioned, Andrew Edmonds, where to eat with amorous intent. Now, a, <laughs> a, a dying fashion, I think, is the Sunday roast. And you talked about Simpsons on the Strand. I used to love that for a Sunday roast. Talk just a bit about Simpsons and the Sunday Roast. Well, Simpsons belongs to the Savoy. It was opened by Richard Doyley Card of, of opera fame, of Gilbert and Sullivan opera fame. It, it was also the home of chess, of all things. So the, there's a carving trolley that had its birth, really, at Simpsons because it was on casters. It was quiet, so it didn't disturb ah. the chess players. 
and you still have booths to one side of the of the main dining room, which were for playing chess. That was the point. Now it's more tourists than MPs. You know, mm-hmm. it used to be a lot of members of the House of Lords. It was very old, very old-fashioned. It still is. It's got a slight whiff of cabbage about it now. And, um, <laughs> That's I, such I think a good it, description. You're right. It needs some some love. And I do think that, you know, these sort of heritage restaurants can't sit still and rest on their laurels. No. I think they, especially if they want to attract the Londoners again, I think, you know, it, it's unacceptable actually to smell of cabbage and not have air conditioning. What's really interesting about this discussion is these heritage places do survive. They survive in some cases with the help of tourism, and that's just reality. And they're they're surprisingly affordable, really. And knowing a little bit about the context and the history and the heritage of these places helps the thoughtful tourist go in there and actually resurrect some of that old world magic. And that's what's great about your book is to be able to read these descriptions before going into one of these places, and then maybe you can better appreciate what they have to offer. Yes, I, I hope that's true. I mean, I, I still love Rules very much in Covent Garden, which is the oldest restaurant in London. It's 1798. Mm-hmm. I think George III was on the throne when it, mm-hmm. <laughs> when it first opened. <laughs> and it was, you know, well, Dickens, Edward VII, when he was Prince of Wales, used to entertain mistresses, you know, Mrs. Langtree, an actress, upstairs. And I believe there's still a room named after mm-hmm. Edward VII that's now the, the cocktail bar, the secret cocktail bar upstairs. Rules does to me feel as though it's still operating a sort of Edwardian level of service. Is it a value for the food, would you say? Yes, I, I, I think rules is is great value because, and the menus are terrific. They have their, their own estate as well, so mm-hmm. they're shooting their own venison and pheasants, and so nice. all of the game is their own from their own estates, and I think that's that's really saying something. They're upholding the standards, I suppose, that they upheld back in 1798. Well, we've got the same taste as uh, apparently the writers of Downton Abbey because the Criterion and Rules both had their little cameos in in that series, didn't they? Yeah. (laughs) Yes, they did. James Sherwood, Discriminating Guide to London. Thanks so much. Thank you. Each year, Rick Steves Tour Guides take thousands of free-spirited travelers on escorted tours through Europe, one small group at a time. This year, you can choose from more than 40 different vacations in Europe's best destinations, from Ireland to Greece, and practically everywhere in between. Begin your next trip at ricksteves.com.